Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. This is part one of our conversation with Gil Chavez, a seasoned specialist in global marketing and communications. With a career spanning over three decades, Gil has honed his expertise in marketing, particularly in the Asian region. Alongside his vast experience, he is also a top-rated professor, having taught over 100 courses in his 24-year teaching career. In this episode, we dive deep into the corporate communications differences between Japan and the U.S., starting off with the financial services sector. We then discuss social media marketing in Japan, including the rise of TikTok in promoting major brands and how the principles of success in the space have evolved over time. We also discuss how broader corporate communications differ between Japanese and North American audiences, as well as the CEO advice for B2B versus B2C communication. Additionally, we touch on international brands that have found success in social media marketing in Japan and the different approaches for media training that Gil uses in Japan versus the West. Gil also highlights some of the skills that have contributed to his success in his work and gives us his best practices for succeeding in the Japan region. Enjoy. It's probably more so culturally and socially in Japan than it is elsewhere. But I know that when Mr. Gershner became the CEO of IBM, after stints at Nabisco and American Express, he was reluctant to do media, but he worked at it and he became pretty good. So it, it takes work and it takes time. Some people just really don't value it and until it's it's a little bit too late. It's like you've got to go out there and stand in the broad daylight and do Q&A in a very uncomfortable situation to coach them, to be engaging, to show that they're a person, to show that what they're trying to do. And I think it's important, not just for external audiences, but for employee audiences first. Mr. Gerstner always wanted to do employee forums first before he did the press conference because the questions were tougher, they were more direct, and it was really a great warm-up. Then he went out, did the press conference, and it was an easy second round for him. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Gil, thanks very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's very exciting to be here. Tell us, where are you in the world today that you're recording from? I'm in uh, Setagaya Ward. So it's one of the wards of Tokyo. Um, in particular, I'm at Gotokuji, which is a, a cute little uh, station area known for uh, uh Gotokuji Temple, which is where the little welcoming cat, the Maniki Neko, uh, is home. Okay, cool. Yeah, a little piece of uh, trivia there. Let me ask you, when you say ward, is that similar to what we would call neighborhood in North America? Uh, it's similar to what you would call a, a borough or uh, something like that. It's uh, Setagaya is roughly about the size of San Antonio, mm. Texas, as far as this city. So it's a couple of million people. Oh, wow. So that that's a large ward. 
Yeah, very large. Well, Tokyo is a very large city, arguably the largest. Okay, so it's like the size of Vancouver. Got you. Tell us, before we dive into everything else, how in the world did you end up there and where did you start from? Well, how did I end up here? Uh, you know, you know, um, I was, you know, I mean, if we really want to get micro on this, uh, as a graduate student, I was uh, head of a karate organization, a karate club at the, in my graduate school. And we had an exchange with Jose University. And so I participated in the exchange way back in the early 90s. Uh, really was intrigued by the whole thing. It was a very difficult experience. Uh, the Gashuku, the karate camp was, was extremely hard. Uh, but I decided to come back and, uh, give it a try and, and see how it'd go. Stayed here for several years, ended up working at IBM. And then I went back to the U.S. I was a professor there for, in central coast of California for three years. And while I was doing that, I was also doing, a, I was an analyst for, uh, Nortel. So I was busy, uh, about 70, 80 hours a week. And then I was headhunted by various companies to, to come back to Asia. I, I actually accepted a job in Singapore, but they switched. They did a bait and switch and sent me to Tokyo because I could handle the Japanese and the larger, much larger city. So that's how I ended up here. It's managing director again for uh, Hill & Knowlton, a PR agency, and then started my own business uh, doing consulting doing media training, and now I've built out, so I'm looking at doing uh, executive development, pushing people up into leadership positions. And throughout all that, I continued to teach because I think that's what I do. So I'm a professor consultant. and been that way for a long time. I wanted to open this up to introduce some of the work that you do, but I think that you covered that a little bit. And so I want to lead into the next topic. Again, something that you you covered, which was your initial exposure to business. So I, I'd like to go back because you said that you had come back over, you were working with IBM, and I'm interested to maybe tap into the first exposure that you had to business and marketing in Asia, you know, was it through the work that you did at IBM? And what was that experience like in the early days at the very beginning of your exposure to business and marketing in Asia? Oh, it was, you know, every now and then, you know, in life, you get lucky. I got very lucky to be uh, with IBM's Asia Pacific uh, uh, team at that time, a highly experienced group of people highly capable, just an expert team. Um, initially, I was brought in um, as kind of like a junior uh, executive uh, communications person. So speech writer, uh, support, uh, public relations, doing press releases, and then supporting executive events. And eventually, I mean, that that built out. I, I worked on uh, promotional events for uh, uh at that time, IBM was the sole sponsor, tech sponsor for the Olympics. So, uh, Lillehammer, uh, uh, Atlanta, uh, Nagano, um, those kinds of uh, huge corporate events. Uh, and then some smaller ones where we did like the launch of the, you know, IBM's first really multimedia internet connected, uh, personal computer, which was, uh, the Aptiva. And we worked with Konishki, who is the 
you know, he's still he's still a great spokesperson for ads. But at that time, he was he was ending his sumo career and uh, moving into uh, advertising. And so I got a lot of experience. It was just, uh, you know, the Internet was starting to blow up and, you know, and it was just an amazing time to be working at really at that time. IBM was a, was really one of the big ones for hardware, software, and services. And it was moving more into services. And so just to be part of that was just a blast. I learned so much. Some people say that you can make your own luck. And I think in a way that it's that it is true. I mean, if you want to get hit by the train of success, you at least have to stand on the tracks. So uh, you don't know when or if the train is actually ever going to come, but you know one thing for sure is that if you're not standing there, you won't get hit. So in a way, it's true. And I talk to a lot of people about just maybe going to areas of the world for whatever reason. Maybe it's karate, right? For me, I threw a dart at a map and ended up in China um, and then you know stayed for, for quite, quite a long time. And fantastic things can happen uh, when you just take the, the leap of faith and go into something and some place that you don't really know and just let nature take its course. But if your your eyes and ears are wide open and you're willing to put in some hard work, a lot of good things can happen. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like stepping on a snake. I mean, you got to be out there walking and, uh, you know, and I mean, it's a positive <laughs> stepping on a snake, but it's a positive thing. So I was out. I was meeting people. I was, you know, extremely social. That's one of the things I like about Tokyo. And um, friend of a, and the other thing is people people are always trying to get their their first circle of friends, and that doesn't work often. It's a friend of a friend of a friend who heard something about something, and I just stumbled into a great one. I'm still friends with a lot of them. I still see them. A wonderful group of people. With your martial arts background, uh, it's no wonder that we're getting a little philosophical here. I feel like those things go hand in hand, right? So uh, the way of life. Let's move over to talking about corporate communications because you've got a ton of experience in corporate communications. It's a topic we've brushed up against in some previous episodes, but we've never really done a deep dive into it. And so this is our opportunity with you to be able to do that. Can you please talk to us about how, if at all, Corporate communications differ in, between Japanese environments and North American environments. Is there something that you know audiences and broader stakeholders in Japan expect when they're listening to an organization that's vastly different from audiences in the U.S., Canada, and Western Europe? Well, there's a, there's a lot of I you know I mean there's some clear differences. There's always an exception to the rule. I would say that particularly in the '90s. Uh, with the build out and the real strong emphasis on the CEO as a leader in the US, you, you really spend a lot of time talking about the CEO. At that time, even into the, the early aughts of, of this century, uh, CEOs were reluctant to do that. And uh, case in point, you know, here is Izakio uh, uh, Toyoda who took over at Toyota after their first uh, serious uh, losses in in in, um, in Toyota, a grandson of the founder and all that. And he was actually, you know, you could see, you know, when he was a, a senior executive before he became a CEO, that he was reluctant to speak or or or, or say anything. And and even in really softball interviews. And uh, 
you know, engineering background. And that, that was not exceptional. Um, but it became a real problem when they had the rumors about the sticking, uh, it may or may not have been true, but the problems with the, the sticking gas pedal, uh, on, on, uh, certain cars and, uh, his reluctance to step up and say that. Now, in fairness to him, he was also dealing with a loss and trying to make Toyota profitable again. So he was really focused on that. However, the largest market is North America. And so there was a lack of focus. And But he grew into the role. And I think he's a great uh, spokesperson now. Uh, he does ads on TV where he's driving those Toyotas on racetracks. So he's done well. But at the time, it was a real education for him. And I think that he really exemplifies what happened was, you know, stay in the background, not talk too much, and then pay the price. And then now he's really put his, you know, himself in the front of uh, Toyota. So uh, a credit to him. So that's, I think, is the evolution. Um, there's still a lot of uh, reluctance for CEOs to step up and uh, and talk. Uh, Mikitani at Rakuten. Uh, you know, Hiroshi Mikitani, he's probably one of the more forward uh, CEOs. Uh, and uh, so that's great. But I've I seen others that have tried and they really, uh, you know, I don't know. They haven't gotten traction. Does it take a different approach? And are they, you know, are they even willing to be trained and educated and coached in that area of the world? Now that's a good point. Um, actually, I, I you know, it, again, it depends. But I, I would say that the more stodgy Japanese companies do not really feel the need to communicate with their stakeholders. Reason being is the stakeholders have always been, um, you know, major shareholders. It's a very conservative approach to things. Uh, you see, the press conferences are very tight very restrained, um, and so on. It's it's a very formal atmosphere. Um, I think I, I may have been the one uh, encouraged the CEO of back at the time of, of Japan Tobacco to, to, to make an appearance on TV uh, and do an interview with NHK. At the time, I thought it was, a, a you know, an obvious thing to do. Uh, apparently, it was, you know, one of the first times that it happened. Now that's you know that kind of thing. You know that was 15 years ago, but there's been a lot of changes that have come under that. I mean, uh, there was a period about 10 years ago where there was a scandal a day on misreporting or food contamination or whatever. So there's been a lot of pain that's kind of flowed through that. That said, uh, there's still corporate governance is still a real. Uh, the board of governors, outside uh, 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 board members, tend to be uh, friends, long time, you know, from high school or whatever. It tends to be too tight. There's not enough daylight or air in those groups, um, and uh, so that's been a problem too. What about if I change it up and I say, okay, what if the company is a B to, like B to B versus B to C? You know, and I, you got me thinking when you said don't feel the need. Some of the stodgier companies don't feel the need to actually communicate with their customers. Well, what if your customer is a B, right? Is a business. 
maybe it's maybe if it's more important on a B2C, you know, like I, I see it oftentimes and I see it done really, really bad <laughs> over here sometimes. Too. You look like, oh, you know, I'm the president and owner and founder of this company. And I'm like, you probably should not have done this or at least you should have got some training. But they obviously wanted to be out front. And and I mean, kudos to them for having the, you know, the cojones to, to stand up there and be in front. Like nobody, nobody loves this. I mean, I've been doing this podcast three and a half years and I still get a little bit nervous when I'm going to come on and, and do this. So nobody, I think, ever fully, fully loves it. But anyway, back to the B2B, B2C, would you say that that you had different advice for being in front and, and doing their own communications? Because if you're talking to actual consumers to buy your product directly to the consumers to buy your product, perhaps maybe there's more of a reason to versus a B2B operation? Well, I, I think part of it, though, is certain CEOs don't want to appear to be like, you know, salesmen, buy my stuff. OK, and and that gets a little bit hokey, too. But I, I would say that there's just a feeling that there's a formality in the position. I, I you know, I've, I've, I've met many, many major CEOs, and some of them are very, very engaging. And yet when they step in front of the camera they tighten up. And it's probably more so culturally and socially in Japan than it is elsewhere. But I know that when Mr. Gershner first began doing, became the CEO of of, uh, of uh, IBM after stints at Nabisco and American Express, he was reluctant to do media. But he worked at it. And he pre- he became pretty good. I, I, I was really impressed. So it, it takes work and it takes time. Um, and, uh, some people just really don't value it. And until it's, it's a little bit too late, it's like, you've got to go out there and stand in the broad daylight and, and do Q and a in a very uncomfortable situation. Um, so, um, I'm an advocate of it, um, to coach them, to be engaging, to show that they're a person, to show what they're trying to do. And I think it's important, not just for external audiences, but for em- employee audiences first. Uh, Mr. Gershner always wanted to do employee forums first because it was before he did the press conference because the questions were tougher, they were more direct, and it was, it was really a great warm-up. Then he went out, did the press conference, and uh, it was an easy second round for him. Yeah, I, I can see that. I think that's actually pretty smart. I want to move on to a slight variance to this and talk about a particular sector, which is the financial services sector. And what I had originally wanted to ask you was concerning the f- and, and making the assumption that there is a vastly different regulatory environment. OK, so when we're talking about either annual reports or doing investor relations, is there an impact between how the regulatory environments are and how investor relation and corporate communications are done in Japan versus like, let's say the US? The biggest problem I have is with with corporate communications. And I'm just going to take it this way. Yeah, is please do. There's, there's some... And this is true with other other places too, but I find that too often CEOs who have become head of uh, – these are public corporations – 
have this feeling that they don't need to answer uh, questions from investors or the public. And, or if they do, they don't need to be necessarily forthcoming. And I object to that. I think that, you know, I, if, if you're going to pay a CEO, we're not paying you for, 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 you know, the five-star restaurant with, with a prospective customer or anything like that. We're paying you for the hard days, the days where you, you have to stand in the light and, and take a public beating. Um, and so I really feel that if a CEO cannot walk out, be let out of the house on their own without a PR person standing right next to them, uh, then maybe they're not the right person and I, I, or, or they've got to change their attitude. But I, I really think that you've got to stand out there in the light and, and, and answer questions. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people that are working – and, and investment, private equity. And a friend of mine says, I, I actually, I'm not in, interested in anything except what are the numbers and how are they going to make them better? And um, when I have done training for that, I've asked some very simple questions regarding their performance. And I've actually had people say stuff like, uh, we don't want to answer that. And I'm like, if I can think of it, I guarantee you the analysts and the journalists are going to think of it. So you need to answer it. Now, maybe that's not a, a, a way that they want it answered, but you, you have to answer it. To say we don't want to answer it is just going to throw – it's going to blow it up, right? So I, I think that there has been this, this feeling that I don't have to do certain things. And like, well, uh, no, I think that that needs to change. Do they ever use a proxy? In place, there might be a panel of three or four people: the CEO, the the you know the various vice presidents to do Q and A. That's not unusual. Um, just so they can toss um, questions to other people that may you know, which is fair enough. But I just uh, I'm I'm really a strong believer that you've got to do Q and A and and do it well. Um, and uh, as a CEO, you should be able to answer what the performances are and what do you think, how do you think you'll make it better? Uh, that's what we're paying you for. You've also taught as part of an MBA program in Japan, courses on social media marketing. What were some of the key concepts of social media marketing for Japanese audiences back then? And how have they evolved over the past 10 years? Well, actually, you know, um, those, this is a good question because way back in the dark ages, you know, um, I, I did do a social media marketing uh, course. It was the first one at that at that uh, program, um, and I came up with some basic concepts that I think still hold. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jean Maria Schonlieb, he he does a creative for uh, Lyft in New York, and. You know, I, I had him. I, I can't take any credit for his for his success, but he was my student many years ago. Um, but the the principles still hold the same: is is create content that is engaging. Now, how do you do that? Now, um, and I, I had a student that was an intern many years ago in 1999 with with uh, Red Bull and stuff, and I thought this is it. For the internet is you you create exciting content that shows you know the high aspirational stuff like uh, you know the squirrel suit and everything else, but then you also do this participative stuff, which is 
the event, such as the, the flying machines where they crash in the water. Those are a- average schmoes trying to, trying to uh, have fun. And then you've got the audience all taking their own organic, natural content. That's all uploaded, plus your own refined content of that event, right? And so those principles still hold, which is let the audience participate in your brand because they'll share. And that sharing is much more engaging than the most beautiful uh, video you can create. And then the video becomes kind of like the the shining example of what the brand is all about. But you've got this participation, and then you've got that aspirational part. Uh, so Jean-Maria did a, a great uh, thing for Lyft, where while they're waiting for a, a Lyft pickup, people have this little arcade, you know, kind of like uh, Pac-Man and things like that. Smart, very smart. You can look it up on, on uh, the internet. But at the same time, those things have still remain the same, but the platforms have become much more visual and uh, dominated by TikTok. Uh, at the time that I was writing uh, the course, Twitter was it for Japan uh, because it was, you know, using kanji, as you, as you know, using Chinese characters, it's very easy to, to pop in a message and tweet it. And that format worked really well for uh, mobile media in Japan and for the language. Um, but now Twitter is is just a juggernaut. And it is so strongly tied, pushing brands forward that um, are just overwhelming uh, larger brands. I, I think that's the biggest change, the platforms. I want to ask you a little bit more about that because, man, you've inspired me. Yay. How? How does Twitter even able to do that? Like, I, I kind of get TikTok or Instagram or other things. Now, I know Twitter, you can put a video in. And, and I'm speaking as somebody who is not a regular Twitter person. I never really jumped on Reddit, never really jumped on Twitter. I felt that these were just messaging boards mostly. And so I never really got into it too much. So tell me, how, how has Twitter achieved this? Okay, well, well, let me clarify that that was Twitter, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And now mm. it's been replaced by TikTok. I, 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 I got to uh, clarify that. Uh, TikTok okay. is, 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 the, is the, the juggernaut now. Twitter yeah, was okay. in Japan. I mean, uh, a friend of mine, she was involved in the launch of Google and she was in the launch of all of Facebook and Twitter. And she was talking about how amazing it was just to get participation um, during, like, they were running an anime film on TV. And at one moment, there was some sort of contest where everybody was supposed to tweet a message. And she had millions and millions of responses for that. So it was very well-suited for the format and the language. And that was great. And, and so that worked really well. But now um, it's TikTok. And TikTok, TikTok is, is, is the king for now. I don't know how long, but right now, uh, I did a survey with my Temple students because um, I teach some classes at, at Temple University, the Philadelphia Public uh, University has a campus over here. Um, and almost none of them use Twitter now. Zero. I mean, almost zero. 
But a lot of them were kind of guiltily confessing to me that they spent a lot of time on TikTok. It's the TV of the Generation Z, it looks like to me. So I, I need to clarify that. So have, in your opinion, have the principles changed? Success principles? No. When it comes to social media marketing? No. Same thing. There, there is something that I, I've, I've noticed has become more prevalent in, um, in the U.S., and, in, and it's always been true in Japan, is that you need celebs and, and influencers. Uh, brands are, are still crucially important in the social media marketing world. However, they deliver less. Because it's so easy to switch. You, you, you want this from the North Face, but it's not there. So you grab the Arcteryx or whatever it is. So it's really easy to switch out. Um, and so it seems to me that what they're trying to do is use influencers and uh, celebs to, to make the brand stick and deliver a little bit more results. Uh, that's what I've seen in the last, yeah, recently. It's always been true for Japan, but. Can you call out some international brands that are doing social media marketing in Japan well, and maybe even why you think they're being successful? Oh, God. I'm probably too old for this. Um, hmm. <laughs> I, I will say that I've always admired uh, Red Bull since, you know, since this student brought Red Bull to my attention in 1998. Um, and I have always thought that their principles have held and they've been consistent about participatory and also a aspirational aspects of the brand. That's been very, very good. I w and, and they do great product placement in Japan. Um, sports shows um, that are covering, you know, all the major uh, sports will show you what I think are obscure non-sports things such as breakdancing. But because it's sponsored by Bre Red Bull, it's good video and it's good visuals and it gets in there and probably Red Bull is paying them a piece of that, uh, a, a pretty good chunk. So Red Bull does a lot of really good product placement in Japan, in Japanese TV and on YouTube and places like that. Personally, I think that they're becoming a little bit too glossy. They're becoming a little bit too beyond. And uh, they need to retrench. I mean, Nike had a problem with this maybe, well, probably still has a problem where they've become too high-end and they've got to come back and become more personable. So I think that they're, they're, they're always going to be the leader as far as content generation. Sheen, I think, is just absolutely scary. Uh, the uh, young... Oh, ultra, Sheen? Ultra, yeah, Sheen, however you say it. You, um as I said, I'm probably too old for this, but um, Xi'an is um, just a juggernaut. And for me, this is Japan. Japan's about quality. They've never looked, with all the respect, they've never looked at China for quality goods or, or, or goods. China's always, you know, they've always come over here and they've done, you know, the, the consumers have done massive amounts of shopping and then brought it back into China. And that became a really big thing about 10 years ago where to the point where people were repackaging things and trying to make it look like it was purchased in Japan rather than or made in Japan rather than China um, but it's it's done really well here um, and I think part of it is just it's not just the clothing 
it's it's not about the globe. It's about it being on TikTok. I think TikTok is driving it as much as anything. Um, so I, I think that that's TikTok's really right now just blowing up. It's it, nobody plays. The students told me they don't look at Facebook except to talk to their parents. Uh, and uh, they really don't use much. Some of them use Pinterest. Pinterest came up because it's a shopping place. They can look and they can shop around. But a lot of them have gone to dedicated apps, the Uniqlo app, the Nike app, and they use the messaging apps, Line, WhatsApp, to communicate. Um, so the the general mass social media app has, has splintered, and they're kind of beyond that now. As someone who does a lot of media training for executives in Asia and elsewhere, do you find that media training is easier or harder for those clients versus in the USA? Now, we, we kind of touched on this earlier, but it doesn't have to be just the CEO, right? So I'm curious to know if we just broadly look at executives in general, how does media training go for you? And do you see that there might be a difference between how you approach it in Japan were you to be approaching it with executives from the West? Yeah, there, there, generally speaking, there is a difference. Um, and in fact, one of my big eye openers was many years ago for a huge, huge company, financial services. And we had to do just like a three-minute video for each for general manager of a division for their annual uh, meeting. And uh, the Japanese all showed up with a written out script and it was memorized. Now that my, my challenge was okay. And I understand they're doing this in English and they wanted to get it right. They didn't want to say something silly, uh, which I often do in Japanese. So I get it. But my challenge was to get them to relax. And, you know, what I, what I tell people is, memor okay, it's okay to memorize the presentation or memorize the script. Then forget it. <laughs> you know it. So quit thinking about it anymore. Now just talk. And all the talking points will come up. So that was the challenge for them. On the other hand, my American clients, some of them hit it, particularly salesmen, people that had strong sales backgrounds. They came in and they nailed it. They were sincere. They had the eye contact, emotions, everything. Boom. Okay, great. And then some of them thought that they were born rock stars and they would say, no, I'm just going to wing it. And 12 minutes later, we don't, and, and, and actually, we, our day was going pretty well. We had done like six or seven videos, and our last one was with um, the country general manager of Japan, and it took three hours to get a three-minute video out of him because he thought he was a rock star. And so the way to humble them is to show them the results and that can be shattering too, but it was like, okay, now he's mad. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that there's obviously there's going to be, you know, variations of that, but that's an extreme example. Let me ask you a question off the cuff. What 
does it take? What are the special skills? What is the, what is the the delicate nuances of of you and what you do? What does it take to be successful at the work that you do in the area of the world you do it? Oh God, <laughs> I wish I knew. As <laughs> any, I mean, you know, maybe people give you a lot of compliments or something to say that you know, hey, you're really good at this, or you're really good at that. But I, I, I'm genuinely curious to know. Obviously, you've been very successful, very tenured in 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 what you do and what you teach over there. What do you believe is is some of the secret sauce um, that makes Gil Chavez as good as he is? I was going to say, well, teaching and consulting, but actually, I think that they're they're related. I mean, that's why I do it. Being a consultant makes you a better teacher. Being a teacher makes you a better uh, consultant. But one thing that I w- I would say is patience. Patience is really hard, and that does not come naturally to me at all. Uh, I, I you know, I, and people have remarked that I'm patient, and I'm like, man, I want everything to have happened last week, everything, um, and uh, and I know that's not going to happen. And so, uh, but I think that cultivating patience has been useful. And I, this is something, and there's one thing that I think that is really important for people is a lot of times misunderstandings happen because uh, the language isn't quite right. The context isn't quite right. The facial expression isn't quite right. There's something off. And there is a tendency for people to take offense. And I've always told people, it's like, if somebody's insulting you, give them time. They will make it clear. But a lot of times they're not insulting you. They don't mean it. They didn't, you know, uh, they're either, you know, they may even be culturally ignorant or they may, you know, whatever. Uh, They may be insecure. But there are a lot of times it's like, count to 10. And you'll see that they really didn't mean it. Um or if they did, they want to apologize because they they realized that it was their joke was a disaster. But I, I think patience and uh, and giving yourself that giving not yourself but the other people a second chance to to make their communication or whatever they said or did right because it's easy to get it wrong in two vastly different cultures like this. Somebody that you're working with in training shows up. And says, hey, I'm really funny. Can we make this funny in some way? I'd like to uh, be comedic. What is your no. initial reaction? <laughs> Don't do it. It's not funny. For <laughs> There's so many reasons it's not going to be funny. <laughs> oh, God. That's like the scariest story. I was like, I'm not sure I can sleep at night now that you've asked that question. <laughs> because, and I'm so, first, calm down, Gil. Jokes don't translate. and. What you think is funny doesn't work. And I, I worked with an interpreter, and I asked her about this. I said, has, you know, has anybody ever said a joke that you cannot translate? And she says, of course, all the time. And I and what do you do? She says, actually, I got this advice from my senpai, my, my friend who was much more experienced. She said, often in Japanese, I just say, the guest made a joke that is very difficult to translate, so please laugh. And everybody laughs, right? That's actually kind of funny. Um, the problem is that that encourages them to make another joke, right? And, oh, no, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Tom Hanks, but when he came here to do a movie once, and he, he they had a big press conference over at Rapongi Hills, 500 people, press came, 
and they were asking him questions and he was doing these grunts and these deep sighs and everything else, just basically kind of doing this extreme, you know, kind of like John Belushi's uh, uh, samurai sandwich maker kind of thing. And it was like, oh, God, don't do that. Stop, Tom, just answer the question. And it was really, really uncomfortable because he was trying really hard to be funny. And oh, it was just a disaster. And so I, I tell people, if you've got a joke about yourself and let's try it, you can tell it. Okay. Jokes about yourself work. Don't make jokes about other people. I, 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 especially if you're in a position of power, you should never make a joke that is any way mean towards anybody weaker than you because it just makes you look bad. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.